The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a podcast about board gaming. And I'm here with my good friend, Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? I'm quite well. I was told that this was going to be a podcast about late 18th century political figures in Republican France. Well, there's going to be some disappointed people, namely you. Fair enough. It is a great time to be a board gamer. Gen Con is over. The flow of games has begun. And it is a great time. Today on the show... We're going to be talking about games we played this week, news, and why it doesn't matter. Our feature game of the day is Root, and our topic is going to be Mark's Top 10 Games. Based on what? Who knows? So, Mark, what did you play this week? Got to play Battle for Rakugan. This is a game that didn't initially hold much appeal to me because I don't really have any affinity for the Legend of the Five Rings setting, and I generally assume that what Fantasy Flight puts out is borderline trash, but it was getting some good buzz, and I've been making more of an effort lately to try games that have been designed or co-designed by women, and this was designed by Tom Jolly and Molly Glover, and Tom Jolly has an interesting uh, past career. I haven't always liked all his work, but he generally does things that are at least interesting. Anyhow, the Battle for Rakugan turned out to be part of what I would I would tentatively call the claustrophobia school, namely what can we strip out and still have a game that works. And for a dudes on a map game, which apparently is all that we ever talk about, despite not having mentioned a dudes on a map game for, I think, over a month, it is remarkably minimalistic. There are no standing armies. There's no pre-existing notion of mustering or supply lines or any of that nonsense. It's kind of like someone looked at Game of Thrones and said, this game is a steaming pile of garbage. And it takes far too much effort to get anything even remotely basic done. And But maybe I could see if I could take a good game out of it, which sounds like a dare. And the initial those initial premises sound very much like something I would say. And so I was quite pleased with how it worked out. It's extremely cutthroat, precisely because it cuts everything else out. And that kind of helps minimize the sting for two reasons. Number one, you know that everyone's going to be punching each other in the face repeatedly real hard and nothing else. And number two, you didn't spend five turns and half an hour of your life building up that army that gets massacred. You just plunked it down this turn. And if you didn't plunk it down, it was going to be gone anyway. Everything's one shot. Everything's transactional. I still haven't begun to wrap my head around how to do well in the game, which inspires confidence that there's a little bit more than than first seems, or maybe the game's purely random, I don't know, but I've had a good time and I'm looking forward to doing more with it. It's a little dry, but it's really intense uh, in a very, very satisfying, fighty kind of way. It proves that what I think I'm enjoying about board games in general is flow, because the flow in this game is real, there's no hookups on the rules, if you have a group that 
you know, dis, you know, doesn't like confrontational games, you know, they like turtling, they like just building their engine, they like just doing their own thing, or they take offense when someone attacks them, and you want to bring them back from the brink of pain and suffering, this is the game. Because it's all about attacking, you get cards that help you attack, you get armies that attack, your tokens can only attack, you attack, that is the game. And I love it, it's a great game. It's very impressive, very minimalistic both in terms of graphic presentation and rules presentation, I would have been a little bit happier if some of the tokens were a little bit easier to pick up on on the board. It's all a little muted in that sense, but quite frankly, between that and garish, I would much prefer overly muted. It really is a triumph, and it's a shot in the arm for a lot of dudes on a map conventions. We've talked a lot about dudes on a map games, and one of the ways that you get around some of the problems is just to, you know, gut some of those things that cause problems. You can't, it is impossible to turtle in this game precisely because all you have are armies to throw at people. And it really is satisfying. It's a little longer than I would like it to be. You know, I would want, given how little actually takes place, you basically place 25 tokens over the course of the game, and that's more or less your game. But I can understand why, because it's relatively thinky. It's a, it's surprisingly deterministic in the way that things like rock, paper, scissors are deterministic. You have to know what the other player is doing, but you can make inferences based on those things. Anyway, uh, we'll probably have occasion to talk about it again because we're probably it's probably going to enter regular rotation at least for a little while because we haven't started exploring its depths. And it's been a, a very welcome surprise. I'm glad that the buzz made me check it out. All right, what's that called? Battle for Rakugan. Sweet. We both played Kill Team. And I'd like to talk about Kill Team for a while. Only because it's new. It's yet another iteration of Kill Team. Games Workshop has Kill Team before. It's a very uh, toned down 40k game where you just take a couple of squads and they battle each other. And what it seems this is, is yet another rendition of Necromunda type thing. You know, a single squad shooting each other. And I think Games Workshop feels as though... And we're not rolling enough dice, because there's yet another roll the dice step for those who know Games Workshop. You have to roll the hit, you have to roll to try to wound them, you have to roll the armor save, and now they've added yet another step, because we need to roll more dice, you have to roll to see what kind of wound it is. And I, they didn't, in my opinion, didn't really bring anything else to the, new to the table, and it'll, I think it'll be, I'll, I'll enjoy playing some of it, but it's not going to be something I'm going to go in-depth in, that's for sure. There's one thing in the in 40k Kill Team, the newest edition that I kind of liked, and that is they do manage to make skirmish tactics on a small board feasible. So that minimizes the setup, that minimizes the the space considerations. It's it's quicker to it's quicker to set up and go. But you're absolutely right. Just the resolution is tiresome. If you have a small firefight between small guys, nothing needs to be, say, as quick as SEAL Team Flicks, the only game that matters, which, of course, is lightning fast because you're just flicking or rolling a single die. But, I mean, there's got to be a happy middle ground between the four rolls. And this is for peons. We're not talking about heroes here. This is every single guy that's going to be shooting every single time. It's incredibly tedious. And what it does is it really makes luck have an outsized influence on the game. Normally, in normal game design terms, the way you help smooth out the probability curve is have everyone roll more dice. But in this case, in order to kill something, you need to get lucky so many times in a row because even a peon is so hard to take down. What that means is is that it's going to have an outsized influence of a lucky shot. And that's going to have follow-on effects and so forth. Anyway, all of this is just based on 
one play. Mind you, I haven't dealt with the campaign system. I think that campaign systems in games like this are often, although not necessarily for the good, but just the base resolution system was so tedious and tiresome, and you just start to lose interest in what's going on, and uh, yeah, it, it was... I was a little bit interested to see what what they were doing with it because although the 40k aesthetic holds no appeal to me, the basic idea of skirmish tabletop tactics is, is something that I'm endlessly interested by, but it just did nothing for me. So that was Warhammer 40k Kill Team. Also, parenthetically, what's with Games Workshop not crediting their designers? That's nonsense. That's par for their course. Well, how about that new thing that we looked at where it was collect all nine, get your booster of your random space marine. Yeah, that is truly the sign of the apocalypse. The seventh seal has truly been opened because now Games Workshop is doing blind buy collectible stuff. Seriously, like, look, I'm still, I'm going to be talking about Shadespire in a couple seconds in the news segment, and I still enjoy me some Shadespire, but seriously. Unbelievable. What else you got on your list? Brought out Hit Z Road again. Hit Z Road is by Martin Wallace, and Martin Wallace is a designer who I don't really get along with. I, I dislike most of his designs. And I mention this primarily because on paper, Martin Wallace should be the designer for me. Generally a strong historical theme. He comes from a a pure wargaming background. He designs crunchy Euros with confrontation elements often. And I spent a long time trying to convince myself that I liked Martin Wallace, but really I don't. There's a couple of designs of his that that I quite enjoy. I like Byzantium. And I like Age of Industry, but I don't like brass. I don't like uh, a lot of other stuff. Yes, I, I realize now half the audience is tuned out. Um, but Hit Z Road is another Martin Wallace game that I enjoy. It is a beautiful production. The theme of the game is basically you're just leading survivors to safety in a, after a zombie apocalypse. But the theme of the game is added to by virtue of the fact that the, the, the sort of conceit of the game is that you are playing with a d- game designed by a child who's survived the zombie apocalypse with scavenged materials. So everything is made to look like a dirty, repurposed thing. So the, the tokens are bottle caps, all the cards were, you know, swiped business cards from some hotel, uh, the player order tokens are swiped identity badges from a lanyard. It's it's great. You really have to, uh, to, to, to see it to really appreciate it. It adds a tremendous amount of charm to the game. Hitsy Road is a relatively straightforward auction game, and I enjoy me some auction games. It also has player elimination, but in the way that I think is pretty acceptable, in that if you're eliminated, it's probably on the last round or before the last round. So it's got some rough edges that add to charm rather than make it a serious problem. And it's probably one of the lightest games that Wallace has ever designed that I've played. I find it enjoyable. It's cute. It's fun. True, but being that light, I think it does go on a little long. Fair. All right, on my list is a a game that I'm growing to like. I've only played it twice so far. It's getting some good buzz. It's called Outlive. It's a post-apocalyptic game. I, I was a, You build an engine. You send your, your workers around. It has a very interesting uh, worker uh, place mechanic. They always stay on the board. They're, they're lying down. means they're not active. Or you, As you move them, you stand them up. And they all have a numeric value. Two threes, a four, and a five. And then if you move in to another area where an opponent has an active worker that's of a lower value. You can put some pressure on them and steal some some resources. So that part is interesting. I'm going to throw uh, a scythe comparison in here, not because it has anything to do with scythe, but the fact that the first time you play scythe, you see these giant mechs. You think it's going to be this cool, you know, area control fighting mech game. And then there's the initial disappointment until you see the mechanics, how they work, and how interesting the game is. Uh, I'm going to put Outlive in the same sort of category because 
when you see this post-apocalyptic theme, you get all excited that you're going to get this in-depth, cool survival feeling. And for me, it just wasn't there. Like the first game, I, I was sort of disappointed, didn't really like it. But when I played the second time, the way the mechanisms work and the way you can build your engine and the way you can you know slowly ramp up and get things working, I'm beginning to like it even more. And that's Outlive. Yeah, last I heard you talk about it, it was after the first play, and you were very disappointed. Well, like I said, it's just the theming. I didn't feel sure. the, I didn't feel they integrated like you have all these items. They help you do actions better, but it it just didn't all you know flow together as it, you know it as it you know, did give you the feeling of this post apocalyptic world. But taken on its own terms, you think it's good? I think so. It'll take some more plays, but and I want to get your outlook on it for sure. Well, you'll have to tune into the podcast for that, which I know yeah. you've never done. No. So this may be premature, and this may be optimistically speaking, but I'd like to say that Reiner Knizia is back. I think he was kind of hibernating for about 15 years, where he was producing stuff that didn't really interest me. But now he's put out, all in the, the space of the past year or so, Quest for El Dorado, Yellow and Yangtze, uh, Blue, Moon, uh, Blue Lagoon, which I haven't tried yet, but I would very much uh, like to try, and it looks up my alley, and Lost Cities Rivals, which we tried for the first time. Again, another auction game. This is Lost Cities with an auction element. And yes... The, all the jokes are appropriate. Reiner Knizia does love to recycle all his stuff and X the dice game and Y the, the card game and then the card game version of the dice game. But it's almost always really interesting just watching him play with these ideas and combining that fundamental card tension of Lost Cities with an auction mechanism that is kind of sort of a mashup of Raw and Trom Fabric, although ultimately derivative of his previous genius works, is still an interesting development of those derivative genius works. And I thoroughly enjoyed my first play of Lost Cities Rivals, more or less exactly what I wanted. And it had all those classic Reiner Knizia tensions about tempo and currency management and denying cards to other players. I kind of burned out on Lost Cities a while ago because I played it about I, I want to say about 70 times with a partner who's obsessed with it and who, uh, I, I she's probably not listening, wasn't very good at it, and so I could more or less play it on autopilot. But the fundamental engine is there, and I really like the board game version of Lost Cities or all the cultist derivatives anyhow. Lost Cities Rivals is a really, really small, really economical package, but takes the Lost Cities formula multiplayer again and combines it with a great auction mechanism. I am looking forward to many more plays of Lost Cities Rivals and seeing what it has to offer. I can't list all of the games, but I'm going to be bringing up a game in the news that has a closed economy like Lost City does, where it has a set amount of money. It's all given out at the beginning of the game, and it's just recycled over and over, and I, I just know that every time I play a game like that, it's it. I always enjoy it. That was the one thing that I really liked about Trump Fabric or Dream Factory or whatever you call it by, by Knizia. The fact that it had a closed economy. The rest of the bidding stuff and the set collection didn't really sing to me. So I'm really glad that he brought it back into a formula that I, that I think is a, is, is a tighter, more compelling package. And that was Lost Cities Rivals. My second last game is Shogun. It's another old one by Queen Games. Oh, yeah, ancient. Ancient. Oh, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Old. Prehistory, yeah. It's brutal. It's a dice... Uh, sorry, a cube tower drop. It's a very interesting game. And I'm only bringing it up because it, it just is. I like it because it's we, how we play it differently. Now that uh, I play with a group who plays a lot more games, before there's a first turn, first player bidding system. And we've never really utilized it very much. It was always, you know, either put nothing or put a token in that, you know, was next to nothing because no one really cared if they went first or not. But that game we played the other night, it was hard bidding on that first player. It was a lot more strategy in this game, and I think I'm going to try to get to the table more often. How long did it take? 
Not very long. I'm sincerely I'm I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I'm trying to think. Uh, three hours, I think. Okay. Yeah, that's the problem. I think if if I could reliably get any of any three of those games, Wallenstein, Shogun, or Immortals, I, I slightly prefer Immortals, although it's very weird. But yeah, Shogun is extremely solid. If you could reliably get in at 120 minutes, I would adore the game, and I'd, I'd want to play it all the time. But I've yet to see it brought to successful fruition under two and a half hours. And- I I did have to double, you know, do a double take on on the game length. It's like really we're gonna. Four four rounds per two years and four rounds each. That's easily changed, though. I don't see why you couldn't just add you know three cards and do two rounds of three cards. I really can't see how that would make a huge difference. I think it would make initial setup too deterministic. It's already the case that in these games, especially Wallenstein and Shogun, that your initial setups are largely determinative of where you're going to end up. You've only got a couple of attacks every round. You're not going to be able to make it very far. And indeed, the, that limited mobility then starts really leaning into some of those other multiplayer conflict game problems. If you're not able to get to the other side of the map, then you're just not going to be able to interact with the person who might be winning or seize the good territory or what have you. So I think, that, I mean, I and I've thought about this too. I wish these games could be, could be brought shorter because they're really neat. And there's a lot of elements of planning and reaction and the, and the, the, the cube tower combat resolution mechanism is wonderful absolutely wonderful it's fun it's it's tactile it's also really really good at evening out probabilities i uh, just at, at three hours it's just too much and the fantastic i'm just gonna say one quick thing about shogun the the action selection is fantastic it's your provinces that actually do all the actions and you have a board of all the actions and you put your province cards on each action and that province is going to do that action and there's a side deck of the 10 different actions and they're randomized every turn and it just turns out to be a fantastic mechanism and that's why I enjoy Shogun Shogun by Queen Games. I really love the first hour and a half of Shogun. I wish... Uh, it's true and then and then there's the winter, right? And it could be really bad. Like if yeah. everyone loses their rice and then there's revolts, that's going to add so much more time to the game. I know for a fact that Dirk Hen is going to release or someone else is going to redevelop a fourth or fifth or sixth game in this series. And every time, like Charlie Brown charging for the football, I'm going to say, maybe either this time it's going to wear its, you know, be worthy of its three-hour length, or it's going to cut it down. And I'm going to run for that sucker hard. I'm probably going to buy it retail. And then I'm going to play it a couple times and then be like, still too long. So true. I, I'm incorrigible. It, it, it can't be helped. One day. One day it will happen. One day. Another game we tried for the first time long overdue is Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition. Now, this is a game that you've been wanting to try for quite some time. This is a game that I've been wanting to try again because I'm trying to track down games designed by women, which is a very, very small population in our hobby, unfortunately. And this was done by Nikki Valens. It was one of the things she did before she left FFG. And I was very leery of going into Mansions of Madness for two reasons. Number one, I've spoken before that I'm generally not a fan of app-driven games. And number two, I am sick to death of FFG's take on Cthulhu, which largely boils down to grubbing for clues and then blasting Yogg-Sothoth in the face with a shotgun. Neither of which I find particularly compelling or thematic or in keeping with the mythos. I was blown away by how wrong I was about Mansions of Bandits. I'm not, it's definitely not, it's not a slam dunk for me. There's a, I have a number of problems with the, with the game and I'm, I'm not going to think that Mansions of Madness second edition is ever really going to be for me, strictly speaking. But on the issue of it being app driven, I have never played any app driven game that came even close to how well Mansions of Madness handled it. It added considerably to the atmosphere, it added considerably to the game space and it reduced considerably the amount of upkeep involved. It was, astounding to me. 
What it, what was your take on on how the app worked? Because I was the one interacting with it. You were mostly downstream in the table. I wanted to hear your experiences. I thought it was fantastic as well. We've done a little bit with uh, Exit or more uh, exactly Unlock, where there's like this puzzle in the You're app. You're not saying it right. You're still not saying it right. Unlock! Unlock! So, so there's parts in the game where it's like, hey, you have to unlock this box and you go into this like cool puzzle where you have to move pieces around or do like a mastermind puzzle system. And that part, that part I loved. And to get back to what you were talking about, same with you. It, it's, it's not my greatest game, but for what it claims that it's going to bring to the table, it does it in spades. It's like you want a story that's completely cooperative, that is, you know, a Cthulhu, you know, find the clues, fight things, then this is what you want for sure. Just on the topic of how combat is handled, suddenly you, and and in the first edition it was handled by a deck of cards, but with the additional opportunities added by the app, every attack, every sanity check is unique to the monster. And the quality of writing isn't astounding, but there were a couple of instances where we were doing horror checks against very low-level monsters, and several people around the table were like, ugh, that's rough. And we really started getting into it. So the app was really selling the experience in a way that a deck of event cards couldn't. Now, which, which actually dovetails into the second thing, my, my fatigue with the Cthulhu mythos. We've only done two scenarios, and arguably they're the first two scenarios, but the scope was perfect. I am sick to death of these globe-trotting, well, you know, I walk across the Atlantic Ocean, and then, as I say, I, you know, hurl dynamite at, at Cthulhu's face or whatever. These were stories about trying to break into a mansion run by cultists and dealing with cultists and weird stuff that they were that they were dealing with. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to go into too much detail so as not to spoil, but I never felt that it was leaving the sort of Lovecraftian type of of milieu. This was this was not an action adventure game. This was not pulp. It was you know, genuinely trying to lean into the sense of cosmic unknown horror and a small number of monsters. In in the second scenario we played, it started off with a riot, just a, a, a group of crazed lo- local townies that wanted us out, and they were the serious threat, and they were frightening, and they were communicated as such. You don't need to have some sort of star-spanning cosmic horror to really sell Lovecraft. Most Lovecraft stories, as an aside, are about a strange thing that no one can understand, not about, you know, a massive kaiju monster that's stomping around the city. Although, to be fair, and I know, he did that too. Yes. <laughs> Suffice to say that I felt that Mansions of Madness was much closer to a Lovecrafting experience than any of the other Lovecraft games that I've ever played. And I I enjoyed it. I thought it bore its length well. I started to get a little bit of fatigue near the end, especially since I was I was doing all the reading. Um, but it was a very compelling experience. And, you know, I'm looking forward to trying the next uh, couple of, of scenarios. Not awesome in terms of scenario design always. You, you made a comment about the second scenario, actually, that I thought was very illustrative. What was it that you said? It was just there was nothing leading us in what direction to go to. It was sort of just like we were bumbling around the entire city hoping to, you know, fall into the clues. Whereas the first one, it was more interesting. It was like, you know, well, this, you know, it was this, it was something to do. I think it was this, this guy's wife. And then we saw this portrait and it sort of led to her, you know, and it, there was, there was a line that you could follow, whereas the second one was all over the place. Another small quick note is that I think this is the first game in a long time where the actual miniatures detracted from the game. The bases they put them on are huge. They cover like the whole board practically, and you can't see the, you know, they have these tokens that slide in, and you can't even see them when they're on the board anyway, and I think they completely dropped the ball on that whole process. 
Yeah, and this is just one of those areas in which Fantasy Flight can't even run with a good product, right? They had to muck it up somehow. So I'm going to be trying to remove those tokens because the art is actually pretty decent and it, you know, they're much more functional, as, as you say, both in terms of space and in terms of reading the stats. But overall, I've got to say, this, was, this, this really helped open my eyes to how app-driven games can be done well really adding to the experience rather than just subbing in for a deck of cards. Because I really felt that they really took the effort to allow the app in Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition to really enhance the overall atm- atmospherics of the game. And if you're going to be doing a game like Mansions of Madness, especially when, as you say, much of the time you're just going to be wandering around trying to trying to trip the next story moment to advance the story, it had better be atmospheric while you're doing that. That's right. And that is Mansions of Madness by Fantasy Flight 2nd Edition. Last game I'm going to talk about is more like an expansion. Uh, Rise of Fenris for Scythe dropped. And we played the first two scenarios. I'll try not to do any spoilers. I'm sure Mark will edit them out if there are any. The only thing, quick things I'm going to say is I just feel it's much like Charterstone again. Where here's a box and oh look there's spoilers. But it's not spoilers. These are just the rules of the of the expansion I just bought. Don't look at this punch out board. It's spoilers. But it's it's not just, I, I'm not even, I'm not going to look at it as a legacy, even though it says it's not legacy. I'm not going to look at it as a spoilers. I've already looked at everything in the box. It's just yet another expansion. Work through the campaign. Add the little, you know, the extra things to the game. So far, all that being said, so far, the two games we played, I am so looking forward to the rest of the games. Seeing the parts in the, uh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> Okay, well, Walker has stopped himself. Seeing the components in the box, I am looking forward to finishing this out, and I think it's going to be fantastic. I really wish you hadn't shown me the Kaiser Soze miniature. That really kind of spoiled everything for me. And the dead Bruce Willis character in the the second tuck box. True. Well, I'm also, I'm glad they put the warning, you know, open C, because it's fruit, right? It's going to go bad, and I'm glad, (laughs) you know, at least they warned you. How did they how did they get the monkey inside the box with enough food to make sure that he would survive the shipment? That was impressive. It was impressive. I'm a little bit disappointed. I haven't played any Rise of Fenris yet. I'm a little bit disappointed that you make a Charterstone comparison. I will just say this. Different people have different perceptions of what constitutes a spoiler. And some people care about these things a great deal. I'm much more sensitive about spoilers for plots than a lot of other people are. In the sen- not in the sense that I'm, you know... Uh, better at sussing them out or anything. I'm just more sensitive in the fact that I would rather hear less about a story going into it than more. And what constitutes an obvious fundamental element of a story setup might be different for me than it is for you. But yeah, I wish based on the, 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 the description of the first scenario, for example, I definitely got the impression that the new rules were being parceled out at a very slow pace, which is not necessarily how I might like to do things, especially since one has to assume that for much of the audience, they've played the Wind Gambit and Invaders from Afar and the base game a number of times already, but who knows? In the two first scenarios, you're not to play with the Wind Gambit. There you go. Yeah, that's also that's also a bit unusual. It, it, it kind of underlines my opinion that of the two scenarios, the Wind Gambit is more ancillary. I was just to just to harken back to our previous discussion of Scythe, and we might actually go in depth on the on Rise of Fenris if we're able to do so in a non spoilery way once we both played through the campaign. But my perception was that Invaders from Afar was really the expansion that Stegmaier wanted to do, and Wind Gambit was just some sort of side idea that turned out to be potentially interesting and cute. Whereas, uh, and so when I, you know, when when we discussed which expansion we thought was more essential, I definitely thought it was Invaders from Afar. But you said you preferred the Wind Gambit. 
just seems like Stegmaier agrees with me, which makes me think I must be wrong. Obviously. Well, even Stegmaier aside, we all... All right, then. We're on to the news and why it doesn't matter. There's tons of news, tons of Gen Con news. So if you want to look up stuff, there's plenty out there. I have a few... I only have two quick things. One isn't actually even new. It's old, but I didn't realize it was happening. There is an old German game called Neue Heimat that a friend of mine had that we always brought out on special occasions. And it's it already went through a Kickstarter, and I just didn't realize it was a reprint of this game, or else I would have been in on this Kickstarter. And the new game is going to be called The Estates. And this is the one I talked about before. It has the closed economy, and you're building up these buildings, and you move down this track. And I am so looking forward to picking this up and playing it and talking about it once I get it. All that I've heard about this game is that the auctions are merciless. Is that true? It is true. I love me a vicious auction game. I was about to say, just after playing Lost Cities and hearing about the rivals and playing this, I think I'm hoping you're going to love this game because it has the closed economy, it has vicious bidding, and and I can't wait. Because it was impossible to get, and now it will be easy to get. Also under the idea of all that is old is new again, which is a recurring topic in the hobby, the Dune license has been acquired by Gale Force 9 for a long time. There were a number of gamers curious about what the state of the Dune license was, in part by virtue of the Dune board game put up by Avalon Hill, which shares a lineage with Cosmic Encounter in that it was designed by the same people, and in many ways Dune was kind of the evolution of the ideas in Cosmic Encounter, the notion of radical asymmetry, which is a notion we will return to very shortly when we talk about Root. Anyhow, the license has been acquired. Apparently for a long time there were problems with the estate, but now there's going to be a new movie, and... There are going to be new products put out by Gale Force 9. Apparently, a reprint of the Dune game is not in the offing. There was kind of sort of a reprint called Rex, which was, you know, done up with the Twilight Imperium universe. And Fantasy Flight, of course, did their Fantasy Flight gloss over it, which is to say they made it worse. And Dune is now going to have a role-playing game and a miniatures game and tabletop games and the whole thing. If that is up your alley, then that is something to look out for. I've never really been huge into Dune. I tried reading it, but I kind of gave up in disgust after a couple pages. Wasn't my thing, but uh, this ought to make a lot of people very happy. Yeah, I watched the first movie, never read the book. Seems interesting, has like the all the houses and all the houses fight against each other and the sand is coming. Oh, man. Oh, wait, wrong oh, one. Oh, no. Anyway. Oh. Is Sting going to be in the new movie? That's all I want to know. It's so true. That would be... Cameo would be amazing. That would be great. Anything... Just putting Sting in anything will make it much better. My last bit of news is that there's going to be a Meeple Circus expansion. Oh, yeah? I'm excited for that. Oh, that's hot. I love Meeple Circus. I love dexterity games, and uh, I love expansions, so it's just the best of all worlds. That's great. That just makes me happy. Exactly. It's something to look forward to. There's been a little bit of news on the upcoming Spirit Island expansion. It is going to have eight new spirits, which is a lot more than people seem to think there was going to be, especially since the ones that have been kicking around uh, playtest groups have been uh, limited to more or less two, although there are very, very interesting ones. It's going. To, the Kickstarter is going to start in mid-October, and as I say, there can be eight new spirits and possibly any number of other things. They've been a little tight-lipped on further details, and the Kickstarter is probably going to be... Funded over the course of about a month, and then the game will probably be in our hands in about seven years. Well, as per the Kickstarter usual. Yeah. They'll probably, it'll probably be delivered shortly after Oblivion gets delivered, which will be half past never. Right after the 15th Chinese New Year, 
which is obviously always happening at, at the center. No, they stack, you see, right? If you haven't finished the previous Chinese New Year, by the time the next one starts, the entire calendar gets pushed down. Ah, see, this is where I get confused all the time. It's very, it's, I, it is very tricky. Final bit of news is that uh, Games Workshop has announced something that I do care about, which is the next season of Warhammer Underworld's Shadespire. Now, the problem is it's not Shadespire. I was worried about this. We talked about this before, and you said, no, 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 it's still going to be called Shadespire. And I said I was worried because nobody calls the game Warhammer Underworlds that I've ever heard, either in person or online anywhere. They all call it Shadespire, but it's not going to be called Shadespire anymore because the next season is Warhammer Underworld's Night Vault, Curse of the Death Lich, Death Dies Again, Grimdark of the Necrofiends. You're kidding. Please tell me you're kidding. No, it's called Night Vault. Okay, thank God. Which sounds like a metal band from Eastern Europe, which actually is not a problem because I like metal bands from Eastern Europe. Anyway, there haven't been any details yet, but the expectation is there's going to be a new starter set and there's going to be a whole bunch more factions. I'm excited to see where the product line goes. I don't know where there is, where, where, what room there is for them to go from here if, because if they're going to make the prior cards compatible with the new set, do they have enough gas in the tank for another several hundred different card effects? I don't know. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. Then again, if the new stuff is not compatible with the old stuff, Am I interested in them hitting reboot? The answer to that is also probably no. So I'm I, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic, suffice to say. But new factions are always great. Uh, we recently had not too long ago a local Shadespire tournament, and although local enthusiasm is somewhat low, I still had a great time. I've not grown tired of the system, so I'm looking forward to seeing what Games Workshop does with Warhammer Underworlds, which apparently is what we have to start calling the game now. Brutal. Yeah. All right. That is the news and why it doesn't matter. On to our feature game, which this week is Root. Root. It was a giant Kickstarter from the people who did Vast. So, Mark, place this in for us. So, on the topic of Vast, under the aegis of saying things that will probably alienate people, uh, Vast was probably one of the games that I disliked the most over the past five years uh, that I had the chance to play. It felt like a barely fleshed out idea rather than an actual game. And the problems with it were several, and indeed I'll, I'll be touching back on some of the failures of Vast when talking about Root. But basically the concept was, what if we took a relatively pedestrian set of Eurogame mechanics and lashed them to radical asymmetry? Asymmetry so radical that no one player could fully internalize what everyone else was doing at the table unless they processed a truly epic information load, especially when coupled with the fact that the rules presentation was arguably a mess. And so what should have been an interesting asymmetric experience just turned out to feel very arbitrary and weird. And it furthermore hampered player interaction because the entire game was was much one of A fights B, B fights C, C fights D. And if you're sitting around the table and you look at C and D as A and say, I can't really touch them because we're operating on entirely different planes anyway. That's my capsule review of Vast. Send all your hate mail to aircanada at aircanada.ca. Yeah, I want to. I want to throw something there too. Sure. Because I was I was thinking about Vast when I was doing my look into Root as well, and the only thing I think I think that when they were playtesting it, or even if they did, sorry, I shouldn't say they didn't do any playtesting. <laughs> it, it seemed like they didn't do any playtesting. But well, it's like, they, hey, we got this great cave thing that's going to you know drive the players along, and and it you know is a is you know a way to time the game, and is great. And the other guy looks like, hey, let's make that a player too. <laughs> <laughs> Brutal. Anyway, 
So apparently later games uh, of Patrick Later, the guy who, who designed and published Vast, uh, they want to make this their thing. Radical asymmetry is their thing, which in and of itself is kind of okay. If you want to have a thing for your publishing house, fine. Even though I think it's safe to say, especially in a contemporary designing context, Radical Asymmetry isn't really a brand, because it's a very, very, very common element. Like, for example, when discussing Battle for Rakugan, we didn't even mention the fact that there are seven asymmetric player factions. Now, I don't mean to equate the level of asymmetry there to what's going on in Rude and Vast, but player asymmetry is a thing we take for granted. Cosmic Encounter arguably invented it, and to many, to a large extent, it hasn't been done that radically since, but it's kind of old hat. I, I really can't even call this asymmetry, though. Because asymmetry means to me that everyone's playing by the same rules and everyone just gets like a different special power or racial power. These people are playing totally different games, I think. Okay, well, here, here's where I'll disagree with you. Okay, so, let, so let's talk about Root then. So Root was designed by Cole Whirl, who, unlike Patrick Later, is uh, a, a game designer with a longer track record. This is not to impugn Later's uh, natural abilities. This is merely to say that Cold World had already put out an infamous traffic, which arguably had some problems, but was kind of cute in a number of ways, and also has arguably one of the best board game titles of all time. He also put out John Company, which we've talked about several times, and is a great game and a wonderful experience and very well designed. And he, the, the the approach that he took to this idea of radical asymmetry in a dudes on a map game, because fundamentally, at the end of the day, this in many ways shares some of the elements of dudes on a map. Here's why I think it works. And I'm a fan of Root. I'll just, just get that right out of the way. I think it's very good, if not, uh, but probably not great. The reason why I think it works is because at the very core of Root, despite the fact that there are six possible different factions with incredibly different mechanisms, they all come together in two fundamental elements that everybody plays by, more or less. One of them is how movement works. Movement works more or less the same for everybody, with the exception of the Vagabond. We'll talk about him later. And they, you know, it rests on a core concept that you can explain at the beginning of the game and everyone needs to understand how that works. Of course, there are wrinkles thrown into this formula, but by and large, everyone works by the same movement system. The second thing is the element of combat. Everybody fights more or less the same way, again, with a minor exception of the Vagabond. And... In combat, everybody scores points the same way. That's the crucial thing, right? And so what this does is it, number one, means that there are at least some capacities that you can immediately intuit from every other faction. You're not going to be caught by surprise because somebody teleports from one edge of the map to the other, because that's just not how movement works. And you can get a sense of how everyone moves. Similarly, the fact that everyone works by roughly the same combat rules means that you know how to get in their way. In a, in a, both in the literal sense of movement and the figurative sense of combat. And everybody scores points from combat in the same way. So if somebody needs to be brought down a peg, if it's your turn to stop somebody, more on that later, you know how to do that because you know how to move with them and you know how to fight with them. And that, I think, I don't know if that was the one of the deliberate conceits right off the top that everybody, even no matter how asymmetric the different powers are in route, they need to operate on the same level on these two factors. That helps, I think emphasize that everyone's at least on a level playing field with something. And that helps tremendously in my estimation. I completely agree with you, Mark. These two fundamental parts of the game uh, show everyone that they're playing the same game. Now that I see it that way, the, the everyone rolls the same two dice. Everyone has the exact same uh, limits to how they can move. So I guess it makes people all feel as though they're on, like you said, a level playing field. So what do you do in route? In the first game of Root, 
you can't play it like you play other games. You can't hope that you're going to go last so you can watch all the other players take their turn. You can't sit there and watch the other players uh, take their turn and learn from what they're doing. You have to be reading your sheet and getting ready for how your certain faction works. Then in later games, after the first game that you inevitably have no idea what you're doing and you have no idea what the other people were doing, and you're slowly learning how to play this game called Root, in later games, you're trying to make moves that not only benefit yourself, but also hinder hinder the others, but not to push too hard because it will limit how effectively they can stop your other opponents as well. Also, you don't want to hit them too hard because then you might cause some retaliation against you as opposed to them retaliating against somebody else, thereby making the game easier to win for one of the other factions. For a game with a theme this adorable, and we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later, there is a lot of kingmaking going on here. Now, I say this somewhat in a bad way, somewhat in a good way. Everybody needs to understand that it is their job that it is one of the fundamental goals of each of their turns to hamper the ambitions of everybody else at the table practically all the time. Kingmaking is very much baked into the design in that if you fail to stop people, then you're just leaving them opportunities. And knowing how to do this with some factions as opposed to others can get a little bit tricky. And this is going to be one of the faction criticisms of the game. There's one fact. So all told in the game, there are six factions. There's the Marquise de Cat, the Eri Dynasties, the Woodland Alliance, the Vagabond, the Lizard Cults, and the Riverfolk Company. And they're all, as we said, extremely different. And even though they all move and fight roughly the same way, the way they power those actions is radically different. Just as an example, the Marquise de Cat is probably the most straightforward in the way that they interact with those elements. They get three actions on a turn, and they can spend an action to do some of those things. The Eri Dynasties, on the other hand, another quote-unquote simple faction, instead have this card puzzle whereby they have a plan of cards that they have to execute. If they're unable to execute them for whatever reason, they suffer massive penalties. And every turn, the plan gets more complicated. Okay, this turn I recruit twice, I move, and then I fight. Okay, this turn I have to recruit three times, move twice, and then fight. Okay, then this turn, and so on and so forth. And it's a very strange juggling act. But in so doing... They have to be very conscious of how to keep everybody else in check, as I was saying. And one of them, the Woodland Alliance in particular, uh, their arc is a bit strange in that they're weak for almost the entirety of the game, and then they can explode into an orgiastic frenzy of scoring points and military dominance. So sometimes, as you said, those early games might be a wash, not just because you don't know how to deal with the asymmetry going on, but also because the tempo and knowing how to mess with other people, even though, as I said fundamentally combat works the same and you know how to stomp on everyone's face but sometimes you don't recognize when you need to stomp on people's faces and so sometimes those dynamics need a little bit of experience with the game and i don't mean that as a slight because discovering these systems is very enjoyable in and of itself a small slight that you can throw in there is the fact that when you're teaching it to like a single new person i was just thinking this while you're explaining it say you have a group of three people that have played before and you have one new person Unfortunately, that one new person can be doing things that are going to throw the whole balance out of whack and could lead to a, a bad experience. You know what I mean, like say if they pick on one person too much, they don't understand how their faction works. They don't understand how the balance must be maintained. One person can totally might be able to throw the whole game off. Agreed 100%. This is especially true of, I think, the most problematic faction of the game, and that's the Vagabond. The Vagabond 
It's not that the Vagabond is more asymmetric than the other factions, because it would be hard to say one is more asymmetric than the other ones. It's just the Vagabond has more exceptions to some of those core rules. The Vagabond doesn't care about presence on the board in the same way that the other factions do. And the Vagabond has radically different movement rules and combat rules. And so that's the one large exception to my generalization that movement and combat is relatively similar. Furthermore, and this I think is the most serious problem, Root is very clever at incentivizing you to go and stomping on people's infrastructure because you get a point every time you clear off somebody's token. So then even if you're even if you're not paying attention to the overall game state, you can look and see where the low-hanging fruit is and try to go get points. You never, as the other factions, or even as another Vagabond, score for punching the Vagabond in the face. But the problem is, it needs to be done. It still needs to be done, and like everything else, it's better if you do it early, even while you're still grappling with things. And so it's a very, very rough edge, and it sticks out very, very prominently, because then you end up in a situation which is sometimes called the Kill Dr. Lucky problem. Kill Dr. Lucky was a, a cheap-ass game where, sorry, cheap-ass was the name of the company. Parenthetically, cheap-ass was recently recently acquired. By Greater Than Games. By Greater Than Games. So there you go. It, it's all it's all the news, folks. Everything, it's Ouroboros. It's eating its own tail. Everything, everything folds into each other. But in Kill Dr. Lucky, anybody could stop somebody from winning, theoretically, but you didn't really want to because you didn't want to spend the resources. So it was always the next player's problem which degenerates into whining and not particularly interesting game dynamic interactions. And sometimes having to stop the Vagabond is the same problem. Normally, if you have to keep somebody else in check, you can score some points in the, prog- uh, the, the, the in, in progress. But the Vagabond just needs to be punched just to punch him. And that's not especially fun for the Vagabond in the first instance, and it's not especially satisfying for the other players either. So it can degenerate a bit into whining. And this whole element of when the king-making goes bad is very much, I think, when Root is at its worst. Agreed. That's going to lead to my next part, which is the game is probably, much like Vast, incredibly hard to teach. Because it's not as though you can give an overall rules explanation. You have to explain everyone's faction to them separately, which is going to lead to a uh, longer gameplay. Also, I think it is a four-player game. I don't really think it plays scales very well, in my opinion. Really? And that's all I have for the bad points. You, you didn't, you didn't like, uh, you didn't I, like. Not it that I didn't like it. No, I think, but I just think it plays so much better at four. That, really? That I think I'd always choose for it to be at four. I think it just keeps the balance that much more in check. Okay. In fairness, we haven't tried it with five or six. Five or six uh, relies more heavily on a vagabond to round out the numbers. A vagabond or two. And since we're, we're both not huge on the vagabond as how it interacts with the rest of the game, we we didn't we we didn't seek out those things. I played it at one. There's a sol- there's the solo mode, which is kind of like uh, training for how your faction works. It's not bad. It, I, I wouldn't write home about it. And I I thought with three it was just fine. Eh, well, d- difference of opinion, I guess. You're right. It is a bit of a bear to teach, and it's hard to convince people that they need to listen to the sub rules explanation for all the other sub factions. I have had success starting out with the common mechanics. Here's how rule works. Here's how movement works. Here's how combat works. Here's how you get points for moving tokens. Okay. Here's your spiel now. This is how your game works. And a lot of little subtle details that matter a whole lot, like when can I recruit? Do do I need to rule a clearing in order to recruit here? Sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes it's no. Sometimes it happens at different times. And those little details can trip you up. I do think the rules are excellently written. I've had no problems with them. There are millions of threads of rules questions on BoardGameGeek where my answer is RTFM. Uh, but some people seem to have serious problems with them, so that, that's at least worth flagging. But yeah, the explanation's a bit of a bear. So quick notes. 
uh, maybe in your rules explanation after you say this is your spiel, and then you point to the, this is how you stop them, this is how you this is how you slow them down, this is how you stop them, and I also have great great rules well put together. Everyone's have the, has these reference cards that gives you that spiel how to you know how to score your victory points, how to slow other people down. Uh, on the back of your faction card, it gives you your setup, all the components that you're supposed to have, all and where they go, and it really makes setup that much faster. Yeah, the faction boards, I think, are a marvel of clarity and illustration. All the necessary little fiddly bits are there. You don't need to go back to the rulebook. It's there on the player board, which I really think was well done. It, I, I think the, the, the development here really understood what information they needed to present and how. And it really helps, actually intuit other people's play those some of those instances where i've really tried really been confused about how to mess up someone else's plans in a more fundamental way i've actually had a great deal of success just getting up and just staring at their player board because it's a much better summary than i found anywhere else all right let's talk about the art and the theme which i thought was fantastic you're these cute little woodland creatures in this in this rampaging war across the countryside, it's so butchering adorable. each other, and you know it leads to all those references about you know how cats always kill birds and and you know all the rigmarole that goes on with you know ribbing people constantly during the game. I thought the theme wasn't going to do anything for me; that it was just going to be irrelevant. But honestly. The artwork is so evocative, both in terms of the player pawns, which are incredibly adorable. They're screen printed with little faces on them. So your little cat warriors have little... That are very uh, angry. Obnoxious cat faces, right? The lizards uh, are so cute. The little otters, of course, are cute. Anyway, everything's adorable. Uh, and the, the, the card artwork, which I will fully admit, as a gamer... I often ignore, but there would be so many times when someone would play a card and say, by the way, check out the card art on this one. And it was just these incredibly expressive and evocative little little woodland creature faces that were so adorable, but at the same time, there seemed to be a story going on behind each of these little little vignettes. It's really, I can't praise the artist Kyle Farron uh, more. He did a fabulous, fabulous job of selling the, the, the setting, selling the theme. It is adorable and also really compelling. And this juxtaposition is so bizarre. It is in many ways, not nearly as much as Battle for Rokugan, but it is still a very mean game where you have to go out of your way to shank somebody. But it's so cute. <laughs> it's such a weird juxtaposition. And I'm amazed at how well it works for me. Yeah, and it also goes on to the board as well. The board's fantastic. It's also double-sided, which leads to another form of play. You can, uh, because every... Every clearing, it's all laid out. It's all these different clearings and this giant woodland thing. On the back, it's like a winter, winter setting, and they all have either fox or bunny or mouse clearings, and you get to make them randomly on the other side. So I think it, that would be an interesting way to do it as well. That is my only criticism about the graphic design of the game, other than the fact that we're a couple of minor typos. It's that on the quote-unquote default board, it is a little bit hard to eyeball which clearing is which, because there are a number of times over the course of the game where you need to take stock of what all of the fox clearings are like in the game, and it can be a little bit tricky to to, to easily visually spot where all the fox clearings That's are. That's true. Almost in every faction, there's certain cards you can only play if you control certain clearings, and knowing if you're controlling those clearings, like you said, I wish the the symbolism was about twice as big or some other way to make it a little bit more clear. I was also very, very pleased with the playing time. Even with a somewhat lengthy rules explanation and with a relatively meaty game experience that, that felt like it had a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? Each 
uh, faction ramps up in power in a different, albeit satis- equally satisfying way. All told, setup, tear down, rules explanation, you're, you're looking at 90 to 120 minutes tops, which for a game this intense and with this many moving parts is very impressive. Agreed. So my comparison to other games, the only thing I have is, like I talked about before, I it's not like other games you've played, like uh, Lords of Hellas or other games where you just get, you know, this card or this, you know, your faction has one special ability. It is very different. So I'm compared to like a one versus all game, like Claustrophobia, where one person plays almost a completely different game. And I really enjoy that because it leads to wanting to play the game more because every faction has its own strategies and ways that you want to make it better. So, you know, even after the game, like we said, a a form of a good game is when you think back how you could have done better, what you would have done differently. I've definitely had in this game. And not only that, you can, you'll have different strategies for each faction. So you can, you know, I, I found it very interesting. I, like you already said, you liked it. I enjoy this game. I'm looking forward to more plays for it, for sure. The highest praise that I can give, Root, is that after I've played a given faction, I want to simultaneously, I equally want to play that faction again, and I also want to try the faction that beat me. And normally, with games like uh, Asymmetry like this, I only just want to try the next new shiny thing, part of, you know, the same impulse that leads me to collect all kinds of games. Uh, It's not that I never want to return to them, but definitely after playing a game of Too Many Bones, for example, which also has a fair amount of Asymmetry, but asymmetry in co-ops is easier to do successfully. I usually want to try a different gear lock after I finish playing. Root is not like that. I'm like, I think I can do better. I can I can make that unique engine work better. I saw the engine unfold a bit and, and some of the strategic possibilities play out. I'd like to do it again. But also that person who beat me, I want to try that faction too. That's exactly what happens. Like when we played the second time, no, it's like, no, I'm going to play the cats again. But <laughs> man, those birds are so cool. Yeah. Yeah. And he, yeah. Yeah, the birds are cool if you can get them to work right. It's it's strange. It's one of those things where different gamers are going to gravitate towards different elements. And I think it really is the case that different players are going to be able to do better with different factions. I wish that the Vagabond integrated a little bit better with the game the way the other ones did. I wish that the kingmaking were sometimes a little bit smoother. Um, and really, when those moments are really at, at their peak, like especially one of, the, one of those instances where like, oh, look, the Vagabond's running rampant again because nobody bothered to check him. That's definitely when Root is, is at its nadir, and I, I really don't like those moments. But the fact that it works as well as it does the rest of the time is truly triumphant because it really gave, it, it's really filling out the promise or at least the vision that was kind of visible and vast. How do we make a competitive game where everyone is working on radically different levels. And I think the answer is, to a certain extent, very much like Cosmic Encounters at the Mold, is that you do have to have those points of contact. You do need to have those moments during the game where everyone is playing according to at least roughly the same rules so that everyone's able to internalize everyone else's game state. And you are able to internalize in, into it other, other people's plays. At the, by the end of a game of Root, you wouldn't necessarily be immediately ready to play all the other factions without a rules refresher, but you will, when you're at least able to roughly understand what it is that they're going to do to impact your game state. And that is just a, a, a success of information presentation and a success of gameplay design. And I really do think that this is the work of, a, of, of an expert designer. And so I'm looking forward to seeing what else what, what else uh, Cole World has, has gotten him because so far he's put out three very different games that have all been very interesting at the least. And our common uh, critique is it, it took too long. I really feel Root is exactly 
a perfect length. I really don't think it goes too long or too short. I think they did a fantastic job on finishing it exactly when it should end. Yeah, the pacing's great. The, the comparison that I would make, actually, and this is a comparison that a number of people have made, is this is kind of like what the coin games wanted to be. So the Counterinsurgency games by GMT. This is a distant plane, Fire in the Lake, Pendragon, uh, Cuba Libre, Indian Abyss. Those games sought to be multiplayer, asymmetric, area control slash area majority games. And to my estimation, they failed in a number of substantial ways. Now, mostly the problems are relatively straightforward ones, which is the games take way too damn long for what they are, and the asymmetry is presented in such a way that you can't internalize what other people need to do in order to win, and so it just feels like these strange bumping up against each other. And to a certain extent, what's actually very, very surprising, furthering the comparison between Root and Coin, is that the asymmetry in the different factions in Root are actually kind of like a counterinsurgency counterinsurgency situation. You have the powerful faction that starts off controlling 90% of the board. You also have the insurgents who start off with nothing and take a while to build up. And so you get all that same dynamic without a lot of the obtuseness, the grotesque obtuseness that you find in a lot of games of coin. And if you find the concept of coin games appealing, I would encourage you to stay away from them and instead play games like El Grande, which are, you know, much better area majority games, or something like Root, which takes the asymmetry and manages to do it in a much more comprehensible and straightforward way. Now, just let me just let me stress, just as a, as a final coda here, this is not about overall complexity of rules. I love me some complicated games. The problem is, you need to be able to present the information and manage the information load in such a way that you can intuit the game state and understand how things are going to develop. Sometimes, simple games make that borderline impossible just because they're weird or they're done very badly. And sometimes very complicated games, things flow very, very nicely. Coin is neither of those two things. (laughs) But Root, because you're all fundamentally scoring the same points... Even though you may score them in different ways, you can still intuit what people are going to do. Absolutely makes it work. All right, my close for Root is that you can really get lost in the game trying to stop everybody else and therefore not win yourself. Or you might have your head down and just concentrate on winning and you're going to lose as well because someone's going to outbeat you because you didn't slow them down. So you need to keep a constant balance throughout the game and know when to hit your points and pull ahead to win the game. Overall, I'm looking forward to my next game's route. Fantastic game. Extremely well done. I agree. Next, we are on to the topic, which is Mark's top 10, which will be followed next time by my top 10. See, this, this just a little bit of background for our readers here. This is a case of, of me outsmarting myself, or at least, or perhaps put better, not being half as clever as I thought I was, because a number of viewers have come forward and asked for, you know, our top 10s of all time or whatever, and not to impugn the product of a certain top 10 heavy channel. Uh, That hasn't really been our style because, well, for one thing, it doesn't lead to a very in-depth discussion of much of anything. It's often just a, a, you know, a series of lists. And we tend to save that for our year, year in review uh, stuff, which works, works fine as it is. But it has been asked by a number of people, and so we are a slave to our fans, and I figured that this would also be an opportunity to have Walker take center stage and just have me shut up for a while, because people have unfairly claimed that I talk over Walker, when in reality, I want Walker, I love listening to Walker talk. It's just sometimes he needs a little coaxing to come out of his shell. And right. I figured him talking about his top ten, no, 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 now let me talk over you legit. 
and I figured Walker talking about his top 10 games would be a great idea. So I said, Walker, why don't we do your top 10 games? And he says, fine, you start. And he's like, well, I've been defeated. Very well. That's what, I just hate top 10s. Like, what is, is this your top 10 uh, based on how many players, though? Based on who you're playing with? Based on... This is just why. Look, but that same criticism... Okay, so let's talk about methods then. That same criticism could be leveled against anything. That same criticism... We just said that Root was a, that Root was a very good game. It's like, okay, well, in what context? With in, what in, kind in, of player? In context like, of games that are coming out in 2018. Sure. Well, then the context here for my top 10 is the context of all the games I've played. Well, I'm going to have a fantastic context next week. Oh, just boy. you wait. The story is going to be fabulous. <sighs> uh, yes. I absolutely concede that there's a certain amount of equating the unequal and of, you know, shoving shoving the, the square pegs into the round holes whenever you try to compare games that are radically different from each other. Like comparing a party game to a heavy strategy game to a war game to a miniatures game is very difficult. But guess what? This is to a certain extent what we signed up for. And this is kind <laughs> of what... This is kind of what it is to talk about board games. And so when because we've played all these kinds of different games, we nonetheless can be in some position to kind of sort of rank them against each other, even though that may not be strictly speaking fair. All right, I'm ready for this garbage that you're about to spew. Let's okay, see well, got. we'll do it in the traditional order of uh, reverse order. So at 10 is Tribune with the expansion. So this is Tribune Prim- uh, Primus Inter Paris with the, uh, the, the Broody Eye expansion. I feel that it wants the expansion, even though that that complicates the information load because it improves the victory conditions. And in that configuration, I honestly think the Tribune is the best worker placement game I've ever played. It's it's really good because it still has player interaction. It has substantial player interaction, and it's not just about using uh, worker placement to distribute available resources that are on the board. But it's about tempo. It's about racing. It's about head to head confrontation over the things you get with those uh, resources. I've liked Tribune ever since it came out. It was designed by Karl-Heinz Schmiel, who is perhaps best known for his Demacher, which is was at the time the seminal heavy Euro game, but now three, four-hour Euro games are kind of the norm, so it's not, no longer its own thing. And I really think that, that Tribune shows what worker placement can do when it is not just the sort of default miscellaneous lazy way to distribute resources. But it's a dice placement game, correct? No. Uh, you don't roll dice? I thought you, it, you no. placed... No. Oh. There are zero dice in Tribune. Walker clearly remembers it very well. A lot of people find Tribune relatively dry. I think it's great, especially since because, again, for a worker placement game, it has so much substantive player interaction. If you want to listen to me talk about Tribune for far, far, far too long, uh, I spent an entire long view episode talking about Tribune, so you can you can go find me rattle on like that forever about it. At number nine, we have Raw by Reiner Knizia. I think I've made relatively clear, even in the bounds of this episode, that I like auction games and I like Reiner Knizia auction games. I think Raw is his best auction game. Many people prefer modern art. I'm not one of those guys. I think that the way that Raw forces you to consider the opportunity cost of everything you buy, precisely because you can't make change and you're limited in the number of purchases you can make, it really, really, really ups the tension. And it includes a heavy element of risk-taking and tempo consideration, in addition to the fact that Raw has like practically every other Reiner Kinsey game, really clever scoring in terms of making some tiles really valuable to some people and borderline worthless to others, but at the same time presented in lots, so you can't just pick what you want. In many ways, like Lost Cities Rivals. I don't think Lost Cities Rivals is as good as Raw, uh, so far anyway, but Raw really is, I think, the definitive Reiner Kinsey auction game. It's the definition of if a game is good, it will get reprinted. 
i.e. there's what, about 13 different editions of Raw? <laughs> Not quite. More like three or four, but yes. And it, is, it, it deserves to stay in print forever. Yeah, I was going to say, it's one of those instances where it just, you know, it stands the test of time and, and is great even today. Absolutely. At number eight, we have my favorite tabletop miniatures game, which is Infinity. I've talked before about how I used to play more miniatures games and I really want to get uh, spend a little bit more time this year. So far, I've been relatively successful. I've played some more Gaslands. i played some more Infinity, but I, I really do think Infinity is, is the very best of the bunch. I love the sci-fi universe. It's a slightly more optimistic uh, vision of the future than, say, Warhammer 40k. It's got a really, really, really tight rule system about risk-taking and about order efficiency. It really... Uh, emphasizes things like taking cover and flanking, which a lot of miniatures games really don't, and I always find disappointing. If you're sick and tired of minis games that are just everyone entering a scrum into the middle, or just everyone standing at one end of the board taking pot shots at people at the other end of the board, cough 40k, cough, you should really give Infinity a try. It's not a cheap hobby to get into, but it's definitely cheaper than a lot of the others, cough 40k, cough. And you can get started with a relatively small number of figures. It's not as popular as the other games, so you might have a little bit of difficulty finding local opponents, but I've never regretted any dime or minute that I've spent on Infinity, the miniatures game. And Walker has nothing to say because he hasn't played it. At number seven, this this is one of my biggest regrets, actually, of living here in Kingston. Number seven is Lupin Louie, which is by far the greatest dexterity game, nay sport, nay human endeavor, that one can devote themselves to. I've been accused of trolling based on my stated enthusiasm for Lupin Louie. I have to emphasize, I am legit saying that Lupin Louie is my number seven game of all time of the, you know, uh, several thousand games that I've rated on BoardGameGeek. It is an amazing, amazing experience if you play by the proper tournament rules as, as established by Rob Cedar, the one that varies seating order. Because as any expert Lupin Louie player will tell you, and I'm not an expert, but I at least know this, there are many, many different kinds of shots one can do in Lupin Louie. But the right-hand shot targeting your right-hand opponent is much easier than the left-hand uh, shot, unless, of course, you happen to be specialized in that, as the uh, great expert Chris Jirwar is. Shout out to Chris Jirwar, who could do a left-hand shot like you wouldn't believe. He was truly a, a threat from all positions. He was one of your power versus players. And uh, Walker's now looking at me like I'm crazy, which a lot of people do when I start talking about Lupin Louie. It's an amazing game. If you haven't tried it, or if you think it's just a kid's game, you're missing out. I'm going to have to give it a try now. Sadly, it requires four players, and it requires four open-minded players, because if you think you're too good for Lupin Louie, first of all, you're not, and secondly, you're not going to be able to enjoy it. It is funny and serious, and it's a great, great kids game. Uh, it's it, it you know circulates in and out of print, but I think you can get German copies now. There's the bigger American version, and then there's the smaller German version. I have the smaller German version. I prefer it. I find it more bouncy. It's it, it's all very technical. The engineering is very specific. Anyway, I should stop talking about Lupin Louie because I could talk about it for How about hours. Lupin Chewy? Have you, did you get a chance to play that? I have played Lupin Chewy. I don't like it as much because the uh, the way that the dynamics of the shots aren't... Uh, I didn't find it as well engineered. Gotcha. I didn't find that the dynamic of the shots worked well enough. It's 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 a fine alternative, but it's, it's not nearly the same. That was number seven. At number six, we have Race for the Galaxy Brink of War. That's the third expansion for Race for the Galaxy. I've commented before when talking about games specifically like Terraforming Mars that if you're going to do 
a two-plus-hour card-based tableau builder, you would better give me something better than has already been uh, presented in Race of the Galaxy. And so far, for what it's worth, I have not found a better tableau builder. I like 51st State, I like Inkopolis, and both of those have strong elements of tableau building, but I think they all pale in comparison to Race of the Galaxy, especially once you have the three base expansions. Race of the Galaxy is now branched off into different expansion paths. We have Alien Artifacts, and we have Xeno Invasion, and those I find kind of cute as diversions, but nothing for me beats... Race for the Galaxy with the first three expansions. I like what Prestige adds to the game. It's a tough game to learn. You have to learn an entire symbolic language, but once you do, it is lightning fast. We're talking 30 to 40 minutes for as satisfying and as intense and as good strategic decision-making as you're going to find in any of the longer, slightly more bloated tableau builders in the Eurosphere. Race of the Galaxy is a triumph, and I've played it well over 100 times, and it is, it, it's still, every time I play it, it shows me something new. It is a tremendous, tremendous game. I have to go back to it. Only played it once years and years ago when it first came out. And... Which is to say you haven't, like, so you were just swimming in icons is what you're, exactly. you're saying. Exactly, yeah. yeah. In my experience, it takes two games for it to click, so you have to really play three times in rapid succession. And then it kind of solidifies. Anyway, which which is a hard sell. At number five, we have Gloomhaven. I don't know if you've heard of Gloomhaven. It's a, it's an obscure no. release. It, uh, is, that, is that, like, from four or five years? I, well, yeah, it's it's, that, it's it's uh it hasn't been getting much buzz. Um, you know, no no one's really heard of Gloomhaven. Yeah, I'm not one of the doubters. I think Gloomhaven's brilliant. I think the combat system and the way it manages cards is really good. The way it parcels out new stuff, I think the pacing is really good as well. I'm not sold on legacy formats generally, but when Gloomhaven has as much rich content, not in terms of story, I think the story in Gloomhaven is largely forgettable. But in terms of the way new content is introduced in classes, new monsters, and new AI decks and stuff like that, it's a beast in terms of time commitment and in terms of table commitment and in terms of just upkeep and management. But find a couple helper apps that work for you. Find more helpful players than, say, Walker, who will help you calculate things like monster damage and AI movement and stuff like that. And Gloomhaven is, for me, a delight. I really think it gets a lot of things right. Yeah, the, the fact that it's doing so well and it has such a drawback due to, like you said, it's it it takes so much to learn the game. And it's not something that you can just pick up and play like these other games. And yet it's doing so well is a testament to how fantastic Gloomhaven is. Yeah. At number four, and I, I'll, I'll stress that number four and number three, uh, if you catch me on a different day, I might reverse them. Number four for me is Imperial 2030. I'm a massive fan of all the games of Matt Gertz. He's probably my second favorite designer of all time after Reiner Knizia. And in terms of current output, he's probably my favorite. But of course, if Knizia returns to his past ways, as I've said before. And Imperial is another instantiation kind of sort of like root of looking at a dudes in a map game and say, how can I flip this on its head? And how can I really bring something new? Imperial 2030 is a stock game that looks like Risk, but it's not Risk. If you play it like Risk, you're going to lose. I, lo- I really like stock games and the combination of investment and military conflict, I think works really, really well. It's got Matt Gertz's signature mechanic, which is the rondle of an action mechanism where you have to move spatially around a rondel to select an action. Turns are really quick. It's an intense game. The reason why I put it at number four and not number three is that Imperial is one of those games where after you've played Imperial, it's not even all that long. It's about two hours, but it's intense and thinky. And you're going to feel a little bit tapped out by virtue of all the calculation and how intense it is. 
and it can be raw. If you make early mistakes, it can be very difficult to, to get back in. But, you know, it's a no luck Euro game. So a lot of no luck Euro games are like that. The original version, Imperial, which was about basically the prelude to the First World War, is also good, but it's more unforgiving. It is yet more uh, uh, punishing if you make a mistake. Imperial 2030 is a little bit looser, but by no means an easy experience. Uh, but if any of these things sound appealing, you have to track down Imperial and give it a shot. It is at the very least, I think, very still unequaled in the field. It's very unique, and I don't, I, I can't think of any other game that does what it does so well. Well, that being like you said, because it has so many to appeal to different people, right? You have, like you said, they have the military, where if you have something like area control, they have something that they can do: go out and attack and take over victory points that way. There's like stock market. There's buying shares. There's just so much you can do in Imperial Twenty Thirty. Something for everyone. I don't know if I'd go that far. It's actually been my experience that people who view it as a conflict game and approach it as a conflict game do so badly that they end up being very frustrated by the experience. But yeah, if you're just happy going off and attacking and don't care about the fact that you're losing. But it's fun to blow their mind when you take over their faction and they don't understand that, you know, the people that they were just attacking with are now somebody else's. Sure. But it's 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 nice to watch their eyes. Well, let me let me just put it this way. If you like the notion of proxy wars, Imperial 2030 is the game for you. Both the Imperial games are better at proxy wars than any other game I've ever seen, hands down. Just, I'm going to buy this country. They're just going to be a meat shield. I'm just going to go and start some doomed conflict because I don't care. Anyway, it's a brilliantly cynical game. Imperial is wonderful. Number three is Antica 2, which is... Uh, the development of Antica, which was uh, Matt Gertz's first published design, actually. And it's the sort of long-attempted uh, Civ light game, where you have a little bit of technology, a little bit of military, a little bit of economic management. And uh, Antica does it better for me than anything else. All the, the you know, the, the Sid Meier Civilization game, better than Through the Ages, better than the New Dawn game. It's really simple, really fast-moving, and... I I I found it immediately appealing, and I've had great success introducing it to a lot of other people, despite the fact that it's a no-luck Euro game. It's just so fast-moving and clean and pleasant, and there's so many different kinds of ways to play that you really feel a sense of freedom when playing Antica. It's a masterwork, and I would defend either version. Antica 1... I think I think Antica 2 is an improvement. It's a refinement. The, the rules are slightly tighter, but I'd still play the first one any day of the week. Absolute blast. And it scales really well, and it's always quick and fun and pleasant. And uh, I really do think that it is it is a, a, a triumph in the area of, you know, sl- whether it's slightly elaborated dudes on a map games or games about the ancient world or civilization games. It's all of those things, and it's wonderful if you haven't tried it yet. It's a marvelous entry into the brilliant world of Matt Gertz because, again, it has this wonderful Rondel action selection, which he's used in most but not all his designs, and I think it's fabulous. If you've tried Concordia, which is another published design of his that's getting a lot of buzz, absolutely try Antica. I like Concordia, but I love Imperial and Antica. It's absolutely brilliant design. Nothing to say Antica too. Fantastic game. Mark just said it all. If you have not tried it, try to get a copy. Give it a roll. Number two is Blue Moon Legends, which is the sort of unexpected but welcome 
Fantasy Flight Omnibus Edition of Blue Moon. Blue Moon was originally re- released uh, by Cosmos in about uh, 2004 with uh, two factions in a, a starter set and then additional decks were released piecemeal. And I collected them all at the time. And when Fantasy Flight acquired the license and just said, here, here's a box with everything ever, ever published in it for like 30, 40 bucks with new updated plastic components. It was completely unexpected and completely uh, welcome. Blue Moon Legends is a bit of a hard sell because it looks like a CCG and there's deck construction like a CCG, but it doesn't play like a CCG. And if you try to play it like a CCG, it will be very, very unfun. Blue Moon Legends is actually kind of sort of an auction game masquerading as a CCG. And your first couple of plays, for similar reasons to Race of the Galaxy, although slightly different, won't really show its system. Because in order for the game to really, really work, you need to know the decks. You need to know your own deck and what your opponent is bringing to the table. And then, when you see that it's all about how many resources am I willing to commit to this fight, the game starts getting super, super deep, super quick. Until then, it can seem unpleasant. So I completely understand. Unlike a lot of these other games, I completely understand You know, people who rate it 5 or 6 on, on, on Board Game Geek. I see where they're coming from. You have to know what you're doing. It takes a little bit of time. But as like many Reiner Knizia games, if you only play it once or twice and you say there's no depth here, you might not just be seeing what he's doing. Because he can do more with a simple set of mechanisms than anybody else. And Blue Moon Legends is just absolutely fabulous i've played it well over 100 times with lots of different people the factions themselves play out very very differently again asymmetry is something i like it's not always done as radically as in root but it's very nice when it is in blue moon uh i've kind of run out of local opponents which is a kind of a shame but there were a number of people back in other cities that i've lived that i've introduced blue moon to and uh to a certain extent a lot of people are, are are looking for a more CCG-ish feel when they're playing a two-player card combat game. But Blue Moon Legends, I do think, is the very best of the lot. It's my favorite card game. It's my favorite two-player game. And it is an absolute testament to what Reiner Knizia can do with relatively simple card values. And I never, I've never tired of Blue Moon for a second, and I'm looking forward to more plays in the future, just so long as I can introduce more people to it. The only thing I have to say to Blue Moon is I feel bad. It was given me a copy as a gift. I think if you open the box, you'll still see the cards in their plastic. I think it's a game that you need to invest a lot of time in, because like you said, you really need to know what you're doing. And there's quite a few factions to get to learn. So the curve is huge, but everyone that I play games with enjoys it immensely so i really should try to get to play it more i feel like the backlog of two-player games that we really need to explore more is getting longer and longer uh it's it it is perhaps the one aspect of the quote-unquote cult of the new that i i I think we're we're leaving beside you know the the, just the sheer depth of two-player games that that we need to get more into is is a bit of a shame i'm looking for this next one i've never heard it about it before what what's this last game uh yeah tigers and euphrates greatest game of all time number one Number one of all time. I've never talked about it at all, ever. It's new to me. How do you play it? Yeah, it's, uh, you put down tiles. It's, Tile, uh, it's a tile lane it's game. T- it's t- Interesting. Yeah, Interesting. so I think we don't need to say any more about Tigers and Euphrates. We spent a lot of time talking about it last time. Go listen to our episode there. It is the greatest game of all time. And I also look forward to playing it more. It's, it's been a perennial ever since I first tried it when I started getting into the hobby. And it's been my favorite game nearly since the beginning of my getting into the hobby, and I don't see it being dethroned anytime soon. So there you go. It's much like Raw, where there's several editions that you can get. It's I well, it'll more likely be on my list. I'm not going to have mine numbered at all. So, But I think as far as I'm concerned, it is if I could keep one game in my collection, it would be Tigers and Euphrates. 
it's so much like chess. It's where you, you can control the board. You can force people to make moves that you want them to and, and manipulate the board in such a way that makes the game so fun. I really enjoy Tigers and Euphrates. Please, if you have not tried it, give it a chance. It is fantastic. Yeah, you're going to see when Walker comes out with his list in the next episode, you're going to see that there's precious little overlap in terms of our top 10. But Tigers and Euphrates is absolutely something that we, we have complete agreement on, as was evident from our last episode. My number one favorite game of all time is going to be the new 40K Monopoly game. <laughs> number two is going to be LCR. LCR, yes. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait. It's going to be the best Monopoly game of all time. 40K, like, why How haven't did, they thought of this sooner? Like, what? 40K Monopoly together? Like, it's it's just, it's obvious. Like, it, it seems so well, clear now. Why didn't we spend our entire news segment talking about how we're so hyped for <laughs> 40K Monopoly? Look out, Seal Team Flicks. You won't be the only game that matters anymore. It's going to be 40K Monopoly from now on. So, thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like, but please don't ask for a top ten list. I have done what you asked me for. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. We read absolutely everything you send us. Sometimes it hurts us, but we do it anyway, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again very much for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.